Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. This week, we have a topic that's very timely in the time of COVID and the Black Lives Matter protests as two of our white women facilitators at WMFDP talking about white women's work around race and that whole journey themselves and how they work, engage others and observations with other white women. So welcome Mo Carrick, who's also a author of several books and uh, her own firm Momentum and an associate uh, senior consultant here at WMFDP. And then also Annika Komen is also a consultant here and founder of Awake at Work, her own firm as well, and an author. So excited to address this topic here. So Mo and Annika, I'm really happy to have you here with us. And, you know, this is a great chance to hear from you all around your experiences as white women who do anti-racism work, who do a lot of work across industries and DNI and you know, what's it like for you both to be living in this time, to be living, you know, we're a few months into COVID-19. We are just a few weeks past the death of George Floyd. You know, we had that incident in New York City with Amy Cooper, who was a white woman who had her own reaction to a black man bird watching and activated the police. You know, that was a sort of a metaphor window for a lot of white folks too. So either of you want to jump in and just talk, what's it like to live and breathe in this time? I can start with, you know, this morning and what was arising. I I spent the weekend with my friend Oni Marchbanks and her family, Black woman in Salem and at an event all day Saturday and marching. And when I woke up this morning, just a, a deep sadness and grief is here. And the murder of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta and just... Also being present with my Black friends as yet another murder happens. And I think it's so important. You know, one of the things I've learned along the way, how important it is not to stay in my head and only cognitively taking this in, but to actually feel the deep pain and grief mine and as much as possible to stay present in empathy with my black friends in the black community. And I really do believe if I can stay fluid with whatever emotions are arising, that there's a way that grief reorganizes us as white folks, as white people in a very somatic and neurobiological way. And so much of our defense, I think, to actually being present and feeling and seeing what's happening is I think some deep part of us knows that we won't be the same. So what's it like right now? Grief and rage, commitment, a deepening commitment, reaching and staying present with those in the Black community that I have relationship with and being in solidarity, but also 
watching white folks and white women, non-binary white folks that are maybe just now starting to wake up to what's happening and and having <laughs> watching my own responses to that and remembering my process when I first started as well and and having compassion but also clear holding a clear line around what this work is and I don't even know I don't know if it's possible to help people not go through some of those really I mean the whole all of the work is messy but you know some of those beginning I'm a good one performative schooling other white people with still supremacy and arrogance happening. I mean, I certainly started that way. So how can I remember that and, and reach and, and also hold a clear line? I appreciate all that reflection, Zonica, and really your commitment to really be with yourself fully and beyond the head. But what happens for you in these times as, as well as anything from listening to Annika? Well, thanks, Michael. And thanks, Annika, for your sharing. I, I think a lot of it's the same for me, similar, adjacent to what you're describing. And I would add, I think that I've been really, this weekend for me was about recentering into my lane, because I think the reactivation of recent in- incidents coming, you know, starting with really the Cooper incident for me, not that that's when it started, but that's when the the big post-pandemic racial uptick happened. And I think I've been very activated and very sad and in a lot of grief, but I've also been very disappointed actually about white feminine culture, of which I'm part of, but it's not my only identity card. And it's in particular white feminine, middle-class, heterosexual, liberal culture, (laughs) because I feel like I feel like I had the opportunity to bear witness to some really troubling behaviors in the last few weeks amongst people who identify with some of the same identity cards as me. And so I feel like I, and I I wrote a blog about this actually last week called Dear Social Media, because I think I I lost my way a little bit around what the relationship is for me about social media, about this point in time, and also about the real work. And I think the big difference for me is that the real work is long, 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 long. And so, so many of my clients, you know, women clients upticking their awareness as they, as they begin to wake up, being in grief and then wanting it to stop soon, you know, and wanting to, to become empty vessels that act like they know nothing. Like that's been one of the things that's been troubling for me is like really smart successful white women becoming all of a sudden, I don't know anything about this. Teach me everything you know, particularly to black people who are in trauma and tired. And so I've been struggling with like, what's my lane about that? And how do I support both my black family members and colleagues and friends and also support, as you said, Annika, my white women friends or people who identify as women as they are going through what they're th- going through without being overly reactive. I just think that's been my my work. So I'm feeling today, I'm feeling more grounded. And I'm we watched Just Murphy last night with my just mercy, excuse me, with my family, which none of us had seen actually. And we cried and and felt and that was powerful. So I think I'm sitting in all of it, all the mess of it. Both of you, I'm struck by how deeply you are with your own process. I like that. And it has me 
you also both spoke about the how you reach out and connect with other white women who are at different points in the journey, particularly those beginning their journey. How do you find that place of love, that grace? The I'm curious what that's like. And it's fine for you all to kind of get in a conversation with each other. And I can be observing it too. It's, don't wait for me for everything. So how is it to, you know, you, you, sent, you mentioned being triggered a little bit, Mo, by some of the behaviors and some of them I think you just named. Yeah, I have been triggered and yet I have empathy because I don't think I knew I was white until I was 24. You've heard me tell that story, Michael, right? And and I understand what it's like to newly be aware of what it means to be white. But I think the behaviors that I'm seeing that have been troubling for me that I both recognize in myself, but also in white feminine culture have been around a few white feminine culture dynamics that I think perpetuate racism. I'll just say the ones that come up for me, Annika, and then yeah, I'm sure you have your own list, right? One of them is this empty vessel syndrome, I'm now calling it, like becoming kind of really not willing to educate self and putting that demand on Black people to tell the stories again and re-traumatize themselves, I think, in some ways. So I'm fatigued by that. I'm also fatigued by white women who, who are really fragile, around the work. And yet I've been there. I've been fragile around the work. And by fragile, I mean like overly reactive in their own grief and loss, which I think is a really important part. I'm noticing that when that interfaces with black people right now, it's not helpful. And I've been really surprised at some of my white friends and colleagues who actually don't, they don't want to talk to me, you know, and we see this with white men, Michael, and it's one of the reasons that white men as full diversity partners has inspired me so much is that I think that I believe that, you know, when Anik and I do, when Anik and I do our work around white women and hold each other accountable and be there with one another, but also hold each other accountable around our own whiteness, we are more fortified to be an allyship as a verb with people of color. And yet we're not turning to each other right now, which to me is an partly an inherited characteristic of insider culture of rugged individualism and a bootstrapping mentality that keeps us from being as effective as we can be. And white women raise many insiders (laughs) and marry them and are daughters of them in terms of the culture of the systems of oppression that have perpetuated for centuries. So like we, I think we have a huge role in actually changing the systems of oppression, but I think we, um, we become too passive for me. And I feel like there's, I just am, I've been annoyed at that. Like I've noticed myself being annoyed and judgmental and, and saying to white women like, oh, that's fine. You're spewing that all over the internet. But what are you actually doing in terms of your work? And I'm trying to be less judgmental right now, but that's the journey I've been on, I think. Mo, you mentioned something about white women that all of a sudden, in some ways, can't locate themselves and their capacity and their own intelligence and then go running and want to be educated and in some ways sometimes coddled or taken along. And I agree with that. And there is, there is when you said empty vessel, what I flashed on is a moment early in my connection with this work where I did have to go through an inner grappling with, I don't know who I am how much of my privilege and my whiteness has determined how I show up, how I've shown up, the contributions that I've made. And it was a necessary 
passage for me, which is different than being kind of a hungry ghost and trying to get filled from the outside. But the other part, I think the the possibility on the other side of that empty vesselness is to go deeper into that inquiry of not knowing and uncertainty. And, And in many ways, I think that's a continued movement and I can feel it right now. I'm kind of getting chills and can feel the the truth in this, at least for me, to be able to return to that place of, I don't know who I am and make that inquiry. But as we do that, we can locate ourselves outside or inside, maybe it's always inside of the conditioning of whiteness and our socialization and find a more trustworthy, consistent, solid place from which to show up from. So that I can remember it really clearly looking back over my life and, and, you know, a lot of the women that I work with non-binary folks in this, in the community that I'm a part of doing this work is, you know, to really make that passage from not collapsing or acting out of shame. And so much of that, of that can drive trying to show up and be the exceptional good one performing perfectionism, or it can even just shut us down and and paralyze us in that. And so one of the antidotes that I would offer, which may seem kind of strange, is that I believe that white folks, white women need to learn how to turn their care and attention towards their own experience and develop an inner holding so as not to blow their own trauma, our own trauma and emotions and you know we might call it fragility but it it really is like a a turning towards and that's not centering ourselves and in many ways it feels highly responsible to actually if shame is arriving if grief is arising how do I work with that in a skillful way so that whatever the conditioning is that's tied up in the somatic body emotional self gets to work itself through. And what I've found is if I can stay present to grief, if I can stay present to rage or defensiveness or whatever it is, and ride that through, surf those emotions, feel them, there's usually a more clear, clean, empowered, grounded place that I arrive at. So that's part of what came up in response to your share, Mo. I love that. And I think I would agree a hundred percent. And I think I've been thinking a lot about this, Annika and Michael, because I, I, I'm very curious about the differences that I'm seeing around gender between white men and white women right now, because I think it's very, very different. My experience in my own community and in my own client base is very different around how we're showing up. And one of the big differences that I'm noticing is that white women, the white women that I'm supporting and noticing are really very vulnerable to shame about this. And I think the men are too, but I think it shows up in different ways. And I think for many white women, it's the perfectionism, but I hear this in white men too, around, I've got to do it right now that I know, or now that I'm letting my consciousness be shifted and I'm aware, what does it look like to do it right? And I just had a friend yesterday, we were walking and we were talking about the issues around race. And she said, you know, but it's very difficult because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to name it. She's a physician and she's in a mixed race marriage. And it's not about her not being aware of the dynamics, but I was really struck by her words around how careful she's being. And that's what I see with a lot of white women. They don't want to do it wrong. So they don't do it. 
they don't enter the hard conversation. And I think it's paralyzing because they do have all these emotions and a genuine desire to, to be part of change. But perfectionism to me just doesn't work in this work of systemic oppression. Like we're going to do it wrong. We're going to mess it up. I, I, I say it wrong. I do it wrong, you know, but I'm learning and I hopefully do it less wrong than I used to. You know, you're mentioning the difference between white men and white women. I think one of the things that you have in another layer of complexity as white women is you have experience of being an outsider around gender and an insider around race. And for white men, we're pretty much across the board insiders, you know, if we're straight, heterosexual too. And, and it's like, we don't have that attachment to an outsider dimension that we have to sort of leave behind and come out to this insider identity, which I can imagine can be even more awkward. It's like the safe place, maybe uh, just sticking to gender. And, uh, you know, it's a more felt experience as an outsider than feeling insiderness. I can imagine. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's really true. And I also think that for many professional white women, it's hard to look at that dynamic because we have, white women have benefited much more from feminism than women of color and black women in particular. And so I think that, you know, that feeling of, is there, like I've, maybe I've fought my whole career to get a seat at the table. I actually had a woman say this to me recently and she said, I've, I bootstrapped myself and I'm on the inside now. I do believe I am at a, as a CEO of a big company, but now what does that mean? And there's only white women in leadership at my company. There's only a few of them still, right? So it's not like the feminist push is over, but it's a feminist push plus a push that is not just white around the advantages of feminism. So I think it does layer a lot of complexity around it in terms of do we feel on the inside or do we feel on the outside? And I'm just really aware that my outsiderness as a woman is really different than my than it would be without my privilege as a white woman. What is it that you see in other white women on their journey or white women colleagues that really inspires you? I mean, what when they actually step into this, I'm hearing you say they manage their own trauma so they don't blow out, become fragile and attract all the attention. They don't require people of color to do all the educating. What else shows up that's like inspiring and moving and you want to give these kind of nudges towards white women they were listening. So last night, as I was thinking about this, I, I reached out to a group of women that have been together for probably two and a half or three years under the guidance of Oni March Banks and, and other women of color in the group as well. And asking them like, what was really key for you? Like what was a turning point shift that you made? And as I watched the comments come in, one of the things that I really appreciated was the consistency of their practice over time. That even though there was a, for, for our community, there was an event that really brought us to this work in a more concise way that to stay with it week after week showing up as we've gone through all sorts of iterations of the work and different phases. So the consistency of practice and staying in with each other, we've had conflict and difference and, and we haven't left each other and we haven't left the work and we've learned how to mess up and 
make repair and continue to do that. And just seeing how the kind of strength that's been forged in that community and that work. One of the key things that really shifted all of us was the embodiment practice and taking it not that the cognitive learning and being able to, in, in many ways, install a race consciousness, a diversity consciousness in the prefrontal cortex. Like we have to go through a rewiring truly of our brain to have a new way that we see and move and relate to the world. But And so that's important. And at some level, if we want to have consistency and stability and sovereignty in our solidarity with black women and black the black community i think we have to move into the the emotional and somatic space and all of them have really taken that journey we're on that and i see it show up in our ability to use our voice to follow the leadership of black women but also bring ourselves, not leave ourselves, as you were saying, Mo, behind. Like we're not supposed to be invisible in this. And I think a lot of times when people say center black women, that doesn't mean lose your center. <laughs> it doesn't mean lose yourself. So a lot of what we learn are learning is how do we show up and share power? Because we need all that we have individually and collectively to continue to move this work forward. So those are a couple of things. Yeah, I love that language. I love that language around shared power. And I think that there's another piece for me that comes up to your question, Michael, which is, I think there's two things. One is, I think the some of the women I'm seeing right now that I really admire, some white women are, they're in it. And they're also, they're recognizing the influence they have in their own systems, their own families, their own schools, their own communities, their own companies. There was a brilliant piece of work done by a mixed group of six entrepreneurs last week. It's available on Hello7. Rachel Rogers was the coach who kind of coordinated it. They, they had a, I won't remember all the names, but Sonia Renee Taylor was on and Susan Hyatt, who's my coach. And it was a diverse group, white men, black women, white women. And they, they really did a beautiful job at speaking about their lane, which was small businesses. And how do you have a pledge, what you're doing, what does the long haul look like and modeling partnership, right. As they were talking. And I didn't feel like anybody was deferring power and strength in order to be in allyship and in partnership with others. So I think that's really, really wonderful. And they're also still making money and growing their businesses. Like they're also saying we have, you know, Yes, this is important. It took us 400 years to get here. It's going to take us, you know, we're going to keep working, but we don't stop everything and lose our power in those spaces either, which I think is the other. The second thing I would say is I think some of the women that I'm seeing that I'm really admiring and when I'm at my best, sometimes I'm less helpful and I'm more in my work and in partnership. And what I mean by that is I'm not fixing something for someone. I'm not acting out of my own guilt and shame to be politically correct. I'm doing the work because I believe the world will be better when we have true equity and when systems do not disproportionately impact some versus others. And so that is a different game. Like I'm sturdy there, you know, I'm not fragile and I'm not going to, I mean, I'm going to get tired, but I'm going to (laughs) rest and I'm going to come back to it, which is what you're saying. But I'm not just in there trying to be helpful to someone else, which I think is a big part of white feminine culture is I think we're trained to be helpful and supportive, which is not a bad urge, right? Let's help each other, but not, not just for the other. 
do we know how they want help? Do we know what help would look like if we could provide it? And I think sometimes we as white women jump in to be helpful without any of that contemplation. Yeah, I want to speak to that just a second. Mo, here's that. What I wanted to say in this podcast most to white women, and I've seen it happen with white men, is you can sometimes take a role of protecting us as white men as we struggle to discover our own blind spots where, well, these guys are really good guys. They don't mean anything negative. I've heard this shared and it's sort of like when white guys can kind of jump on that, say, yeah, we don't mean it. We don't have, and we get out of this realizing our own insiderness in gender and, and race and across the board. And it's like, it sort of gives us an out, but it also sometimes for white women who are in, in an HR role, might even preclude us from having the session that we need to learn from in the first place, you know, where it's like white guys are going to be way too uncomfortable having to be looking at their white maleness. We don't think that's going to be productive and things. And so, you know, and yet when we discover our blind spots, we're grateful for the most part, and we can partner with white women better too, not just people of color. So that urge to protect, which might be part of what you're saying is how to be helpful to others is the difference between intent and impact. It's like, help us, let us get uncomfortable as white guys with our own, let us squirm in our seats as we discover our own, what for many passive racist backgrounds that we've grown up in, as well as sexist, allow that learning path. Yeah, thank you, Michael, for that. I think it's so rich. And and I, I'm aware of my own urge to be helpful to white men around. And by that, I mean like, sometimes keeping them from that pain that's so important for them to learn. It's like built into who I am. And it came up for me even last night, we were watching the movie, Just Mercy, and both my son, who's in his late 20s, and my husband, who is in this work as well, as you know, in D&I work, they both were, as we all were, very, very emotional about the film. And I went out because I needed a tissue because I was teary. And I put the box of tissues down in front of my son because he was emotional and he reacted to that and said, I don't need the Kleenex right now. Like that's your mom, you need the Kleenex, you know? And I was, that was me caretaking in just like this little way. And I think what he was saying is let me be in my pain about this. I haven't thought about this particular thing with, with Brian and, and the capital punishment dynamic around race. And he needed to be in that. And so my instinct, it was like a genuine good instinct. It's not like I'm a bad person for wanting to help him, but it's also okay to be like, actually, if he needs Kleenex, he'll ask me. He can see them on my side table and he can come get them. Oh, it's a tiny example, but I think it is illustrative of what you're saying. We all can assume and get tied into each other's fragileness as white folks around this. Annika, what comes up as you hear all that or... What else do you want to share and say to white women? I think I've been more of an antagonizer of white men than I have been a comforter is what came up. (laughs) I don't know if that's exactly true, but I don't think I've had that kind of response. Although I have had more, one of the teachers early on in this work, a black woman said to me, you know, that white women are chasing fool's gold when we're chasing the the gaze of white men. 
and relying on them to give us a seat at the table or share power or keep us protected. And, you know, so when I was, when you were speaking to that, I was thinking about that. And I do think that, you know, my complicity in that has been more of my own consciousness, which, you know, has been conditioned by my mother and my grandmother and my whole lineage of in some ways focusing on white men as the salvation, like the, the the rescuing, the being able to lead us out of this. And I think that was one of the big shifts that happened for me in that is a recentering in myself and a kind of a, a more equalizing of the playing field, just in my own consciousness of how I relate to others in general. But I had that really, really well conditioned. I think about, you know, my grandmother who was pregnant and my grandfather went to the war, was gone for four years and raised. My mom had a business, was in community, sustained herself, thrived in the community. And then, you know, the colonel came home and my mother tells a story about shopping. And my mom is now four and she's my grandmother is putting stuff in the cart and my grandfather is determining what goes in the cart, taking things out that my grandmother has and watching my, my grandmother defer to the white male and that conditioning. Yeah. And and my mom did that and it got, so a lot of that dismantling of where do I center value? and, And really it's coming back again to ourselves. I only think when we have an inner equity of self-centering, not in the, the negative way, but being able to, to root in ourselves, to hold our own innate value and, and not putting it out onto other people. One of Another one of my teachers says that a lot of times what white women have done is like that kind of gaze they've had with white, white men in this work, they'll just turn it to black women, which is still not an authentic, sustainable relationship. There's still a a denial of humanity in that and denial of our personal power. So, and, and I noticed that I did that early on. So I can't, I can't say enough about even with the urgency, even with the violence and the, the murders of black men and black women and all the inequities that we see, I can't say enough about settling and slowing down in this work and listening and learning and digesting for a while. And my experience with myself and every person that I've seen is as they do a depth of inner work, the clarity about external action and where to place ourselves in relationship and in communities of color to support becomes much more clear. And then we bring ourselves and the gifts in our own purpose, the integrity comes along with us instead of all this performing and messiness. So, but it's always messy. Yeah, it is. It is. And there, there's a, you reminded me of something, Annika, I love that story about your family. And I, there's a beautiful scene in, um, in Just Mercy, which is fresh in my mind, of the white woman who he's working with, who if you've seen the movie, you'll remember it. It's when he is experiencing his own trauma of watching capital punishment happen. And he's telling her a little bit of that story, what that's like for him. And she, she sits with him in grounded confidence, in deep empathy. And she says, I can't even imagine what it's been like for you to have this happen. But here's what I believe about you and about this community. And I, I love that scene because it reminds me that in order to be helpful, we really have to be grounded. We have to have our feet firmly 
in our power. Otherwise, we're not much used to to equity work. And we can do that. And we can do that with each other. Like there's a, there's some sanctity around us doing that with each other so that we're we're stronger reaching across indifference. And I think that's another learning for a lot of white women, especially in business, where white women often are the only. I think they've learned to affiliate more in the culture of white men as the only rather than also looking to that community of white women to help in their in their equity journey. So I'm feeling inspired just listening to both of you on your own journeys as white women coming to places of depth around all this reflection, places of peace, places of managing your own fragileness, managing your own power, your voice, not not doing it at a surface level, but doing it at a deep level. And it feels to me like white women are lucky to have you as allies out there. We just have a few minutes left. I'm just wondering what other gifts or suggestions or advice or uh, reflections do you want to share with white women listening? Maybe they're wondering about next steps for themselves. I think, thanks, Michael, so much for convening the conversation. It's really nice to chat with you, Annika and Michael. I think here's here's what's present for me right now. It's the next step of just really being curious like really genuinely being curious about what's happening inside of you, what's happening in your organization, what's happening to the black people in your community and around you and being curious without trying to be right or wrong about the judgment that you have about what's happening. You know, that's the work that's in front of me right now. And I offer that to any white women who are listening around. It's less important. I think what we do right now what we do right now than how we be right now because we have to do things differently for a long, long time. So I think getting curious and knowing that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. This is a a way of living from here forward. It's not a moment. (laughs) And I think the other thing that comes up for me, and I just want to also acknowledge that who I am and where I am wouldn't have been possible without Black women that have taught me, I'd like to just name a couple that I'd, I'd refer people to. That would be Oni Marchbanks, Desiree Lynn Attaway and her Freedom School, Lisa Renee Hall and Unpack Biases Now, April Harder and her Recovery from Racism program, Mackenzie Mack. From the get-go, I invested time and money and energy in learning and I'm you know just starting a 12 month racism recovery program right now today actually and so I think there's something to me about making the commitment to staying in our in our work that's really important and when we start to focus there again there's like an accountability there's a container there's somewhere to kind of focus our energies. And again, what I would say is that the depth and the integrity of the internal work will lead to the clarity and potency and partnerships that we're able to form in the external. So that's kind of, I guess, the the message I would give. And to let white women know, because of what you are naming as the insider-outsider dynamic, I often say it's kind of like a double helix. We need to be focused and intentional 
about how we show up and support women of color and people of color and do that learning. And we also need to be tracking our own internalized oppression and trauma and experience. And it's not really, we don't get to choose, oh, I'm going to do this or, or, or that one. They're kind of both active at the same time, sometimes one more than others as far as the balance. But it feels important that we we pay attention with care to both of those those tracks. Yeah, thank you both. And again, appreciate your both, the journeys you're on, the work you're doing, and that I get to partner with you all. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mo. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Annika. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast. <laughs>